Um, If you have a Bible, why don't you turn to Exodus chapter 17. I want to take you to a very short story in the book of Exodus. What's incredible, as 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 we see this story, is not just a story about an isolated people at a place in time about 3,000 years ago, but this is a story that speaks to the reality of the human heart. In many ways, this story reveals the, the very essence of the Christian story, of humanity's rebellion against God and about God's gracious response to our rebellion. The people of Israel find themselves here in, on, on, in the wilderness. They've been brought out of slavery. And in, in running up to this passage we're about to look at, there have been three incidents, including this one, where God is testing them. He's brought them to a moment. First incident, he brought them to water that was bitter so that they would call out to him and he would turn that water into sweet water they could drink. Then, just before this moment, we saw a moment where, he, uh, where they were hungry, they were desperate for food, and so he poured down bread from heaven, provided manna in the wilderness. And this is the third moment where, again, they find themselves without. He's led them to a place, Rephidim, where there is no water. And each one of these incidents is really about the Lord testing them, about revealing what's in their hearts. But it's also about him teaching them, teaching them that he alone is the one who can be trusted. As we'll see, they completely fail the test, as you'd expect, perhaps, if you have any familiarity with the Old Testament. They quickly start to rail against God. They're angry with God. They feel like he has brought them to the wilderness to die. And that's what I want to, that's what the, I want to read to you. Exodus chapter 17, verse 1 to 7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? It's almost like, why do you put the Lord on trial? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Why have you brought us here to die, is what they're saying. So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. And water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? So just remember the, the kind of shockingness of this scene. Here we are, the people of Israel have been rescued by God. He's brought them out of the wilderness. He's brought them out of slavery to Egypt. He's taken them through the wilderness. They've already seen him turn bitter water into sweet water they can drink. They've already seen bread raining down from heaven. Even this day, they would have been, this very day, they would have seen that bread rain down from heaven. The Lord providing food for them miraculously. 
bread and meat in the form of quails, and yet they are indignant. They are putting the Lord on trial. They are arguing with him, why have you brought us here? How could you have done this, Lord? They are angry. This is a picture of rebellion. It's a picture of ingratitude. And it's very easy to look at this story and to feel a sense of superiority to the people of Israel. To feel like, oh, you foolish people of Israel, yet again have you forgotten the promises of God? Yet again have you allowed discontent to grow up in your hearts and to rail against the living God? But my suggestion to you is this story actually is about us. There's a great story in the Old Testament about uh, David and Nathan. And David has, has committed adultery. He's uh, committed adultery with a woman called Bathsheba. And he sent her husband to die on the battlefield. And Nathan tells him a great story about a man who has a great flock of sheep. And, it's a, it, and, and, and he's kind of got very rich. And then he takes the one sheep from a man who has just one sheep. And David, as he hears the story, as he hears the injustice of this man who has a, a huge flock of sheep and would yet take one sheep from, what, from this man who just has one sheep. He is indignant. He's outraged. And then Nathan says these great words, thou art the man. You are the man this story is talking about. And so as we read the Bible, so often we feel indignant, we feel outraged at the sinfulness, the the kind of stupidity of God's people. And yet so often God is saying to us, thou art the man. You are the person in this story. We see a character of, I want to describe the people of Israel here as thirsty rebels thirsty rebels. And I want to suggest to you that we are the same thirsty rebels. You can see it on a societal level, a sense of discontent, a sense of discontent that is kind of like the mood music of our culture. A society so quick to rail against God, to put God in the dock, to judge him when he is the one who judges us. We see it on a societal level. We even see this on an individual level. You see, the word thirst is often in a biblical sense, is not just about uh, thirst for water. So often thirst speaks for a much bigger concept. I mean, it speaks of desire. This is how Psalm 63 puts it. This is how David speaks. He says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. Some of us, as we hear this story of people in a wilderness, will say, I am in a wilderness and I feel thirsty. I feel like I'm struggling. I'm going through a trial. I'm experiencing suffering. And there'll be a kind of special relevance to those who are going through trials and suffering. Whenever you read about God's people in the wilderness... But actually, we see that thirst is a a much broader idea than that. We are all thirsty. We're thirsty every day. Desire is part of what it means to be human. If you didn't desire, you wouldn't be a human. Instead, this story really provokes you to ask the question, when you have desires, there are two places you can go. Or rather, when I specifically, I want to say unfulfilled desire, unmet expectations, that longing for a spouse that hasn't arrived, that sense of uh, longing for a new job, or a sense of we all have unfulfilled desires. The question is, in the moment of unfulfilled desires, in the moment of dissatisfaction, where will you go? Will you rail against God? Will you blame God and withdraw from him? Will you put God on trial like these people? Or will you draw near to God in trust, in faith, and in confidence of the Lord's goodness? That is the question. Ultimately, will you come to the rock that is Christ and receive the living water that Christ promises? And yet, as we go on in this story, you'll see there's an incredible response from God. 
despite the fact that we are so easily rebellious towards God, the fact that we so easily put God in the dock, we see his grace poured out on the people of Israel. Again and again, he provides everything to them, even though they don't deserve it. There is living water for thirsty rebels. So I want to ask three questions this morning. First of all, what went wrong? What went wrong to get them to this place? How does God respond? And what should we do now? What went wrong? How does God respond? And what should we do now? So what went wrong? Or rather, what even goes wrong in our lives to get to a place like this? Well, they're unhappy. They're discontented. They're frustrated. They have unmet desires. And they don't trust God to satisfy them. So they rebel against him. They put God in the dock. And this is our story too. We are unhappy. We have all sorts of unmet desires And we don't trust God. And so we harden our hearts against him. We rebel against him. You can see the unhappiness. You can see the the kind of constant theme of grumbling in this story. All the way back, actually, to chapter 15, verse 24, when they found themselves in the first location where they didn't have water. Uh, It says, and the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Or later on in in chapter 16, when they, they appear not to have food. It says, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, what would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full? For you have brought us into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They're saying they're wishing they were back in Egypt, back where they had this mythical meat pots and bread and everything they wanted. Well, of course they didn't. It was was slavery. It was harsh. It was bitter. They were dying. There's discontent bubbling up in their hearts all the way through. And again, we see it in this story. And I want to argue, first of all, you see this in our culture. Discontent is the kind of mood music of our society. Think about the existential angst. In so often in modern people of, you know, looking to change my circumstances in some way. There's almost a lingering sense of every moment you get to, there's a sense of what next? Do I need to change my job? Maybe I need to change my city. Maybe I need to change my relationship. Maybe I need to find a hobby. Maybe I need to... There's always a sense of what do I need to change that will bring me contentment? Uh, the um, psychologist Freud called, it, called this unheimlich, a kind of sense of unsettledness, a sense of never quite being at home, never feeling like you belong, never feeling like everything is just right, always looking for that thing that might m- make me happier, that thing that I need. What do I knew, need to do to change my circumstances to make me happy? Look beneath the existential crisis of our generation. Look beneath the ongoing covetousness, the longing that you feel as you look almost certainly through a screen, whether it be your phone or your TV, as you look at the holidays that someone else is having or the meals that someone else is having or the relationship status of someone else or whatever it is, our whole economy, our whole society is built around fostering a sense of of covetousness, a sense of desiring what you don't have. Of, of growing that jealousy. Some whole marketing campaigns are built around building a sense of discontent in you so you long for that thing that says, if only you have this, then you'll be happy. Discontent is part of the mood music of our culture. Existential angst, looking at how I can change my circumstances of that thing that will make me happy. This is part of our world. 
comparing accomplishments, looking at that person's role and thinking, if only I had that role, if only I had that house, if only I had this or that, this is the part of the human condition. A sense of unfulfilled desire. No human being, I would argue, really, outside of the Lord, feels a sense of settled contentment. Unfulfilled desire is part of the human condition. But what this passage tells us really remarkably is that discontent is actually a trust problem. You see, the people of Israel are almost remarkable in their ingratitude, in their sense of discontent. When the Lord has provided so much for them, the real problem is not their circumstances, it's their lack of trust in the living God. God had brought them out to the wilderness. He even brought them to this place where there was no water so they would learn to see that he is the one who provides water. In Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 8, this is how he describes it. He says, He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now you hear Jesus restate those verses in the, in the wilderness, but, but really what they're saying is, not perhaps that man needs a spiritual side of life, although I think that, that would be a fair implication. What they're really saying is, I brought you to the wilderness to teach you to depend on me. I brought you here to teach you that you could trust me, that you would only endure through this, this wilderness when you didn't have water, when you trusted me that I would provide. And yet what do they do? They rail against God because they do not trust him. Their discontent is a trust problem. That is why, as a Christian, you're unhappy. It says you can actually be a Christian and believe in God and still be discontented. Why? Because you don't trust him. You don't trust him that he is good, that he will, enable, he will bring you through whatever hardship you're going through. The sense of trust in the Lord is essential for your contentment. By, that way, by the way, that means if you're not a Christian... It says your contentment is fundamentally a God problem. It says none of the temporary highs of this life, none of the, the goods of this world will fulfill your longing for lasting satisfaction. And you see that in modern man, don't you? Consuming his heart out with all sorts of different places. In a sense, London is the place to consume whatever you want, whenever you want it. And yet, he is unsatisfied. Drinking and drinking and still thirsty at the end of it. The reason why is because we're saying you're looking in the wrong places. C.S. Lewis said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. In a sense, I often say to somebody who's not a Christian, I say, actually, one of the ways you can see the reality of God is the fact that in this life, you can accomplish everything in terms of job and career and relationship and all the kind of tick boxes that our society would say and still be unhappy says you are made for something bigger. Actually, Augustine put it even better. He said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. He's saying we are made as dependent creatures. We are made for a relationship with God, that God himself would be our deepest satisfaction. It has written into our wiring. And it says, until you recognize that, until you connect with the person who can satisfy your deepest longings, you will forever be unsatisfied. Our deepest longings can only be satisfied in Christ. I think any human being, whether you're a Christian or not, would recognize the need and longing for love. 
Some people would say that's the very essence of what it means to be a human being, to need love, to be, want to be loved. We all want to be loved. And yet that is only found in the unconditional love of Christ that is not based on your performance, but poured out on the cross of Christ. Or forgiveness, how easily a kind of guilty conscience sticks to us. And many people who aren't Christians will speak of almost going on and on for years with a sense of guilt from things they've done. Christians, of course, will, will relate to this too. And yet in Christ, we have the freedom of forgiveness that liberates that guilty conscience for eternity. Purpose. We live in a world that is longing for purpose, longing for a sense of direction and meaning. And that's part of the existential angst that we see. And yet we say in Christ alone do we find the purpose because he made you and he gives you a purpose. Or hope. I think no human being can survive without hope. No human being can survive without the prospect that that this life is, is it. That's a very uncomfortable thought that we try and black out, that we try and move to the margins of our society. It says, no, only in Christ do you find a hope against the reality, against that great evil of death. So, so if you're not a Christian, I think the first thing you need to know is contentment is a God problem. But even as a Christian, you may well say, I believe, and yet I don't have this contentment. I relate to the people of, of, in, the, in the desert who are feeling angry and grumbling. We think our solution to our contentment is a change in circumstances, but I would say it's a trust problem. It's the trust, it's your, if I want to suggest to you that the foundation stone of your faith, the guiding rock that you need to have in place if you want to do the Christian life is a strong conviction that God is good and that God is at work in your life. And without that conviction of the goodness of God, you will, you will die as a Christian. That conviction of the goodness of God is what will drive you into prayer. It's that lack of conviction that God is good that prayer suddenly starts to become this kind of stale routine. It's not only the conviction that God is good, it's the experience of his goodness. The experience of the the sweetness of his promises speaking to your heart that make your heart sing. The conviction of the goodness of God is the most essential conviction in the Christian life. Or even sin. So often the temptation to sin is actually really underneath, behind the sin. The real problem is discontentment. Because it says, I have not found joy in Christ. So I'm going to go to this or that or that temptation because I I want to find joy. We are kind of magnets for joy. We will go to wherever we feel we're going to find contentment. And unless you believe that God is experientially good and it will lead you in, in, towards his goodness, you will, you will go towards sin. You will naturally, you will go and say, this is more satisfying, and so I'll go there instead. Even that silent anger towards God that, that, that you may not have even voiced, that is underneath the surface. Perhaps you're going through a trial, perhaps you're going through suffering, and underneath you know that there's some resentment towards God. Actually, often what's behind that is a failure to believe that you can trust God, that he is using this trial to discipline you and shape you into Christ-likeness. So actually, the first step towards contentment in the Christian life is saying to God, I repent of not trusting you. I repent of not believing that you alone can satisfy my deepest longings and that you will work through whatever circumstances I'm experiencing for my good. But it goes on. The people take this discontent and it turns to rebellion. See, in verse 3 and verse 4, they they put God on trial. 
You can see that by the words that God uses uh, to describe this. Massa means testing. Meribah means quarreling. And it's a, that quarreling, even that doesn't really do it justice. It's, it speaks of a kind of bringing a legal complaint. It's like this is a scene where they're putting God on trial. They're railing against him. And how, what's the verdict at the end of the trial? Let's kill Moses. Let's kill the one who, who, who God has anointed. This is a, almost an act of deicide, of killing God, of certainly of killing his, the one he's established to put in front of them. This discontent is no mere grumbling. This is open rebellion, saying you brought us here to die, and so we are going to throw off the shackles of the living God. We don't want to follow you anymore. They, he brought them to the wilderness to test them, and yet they put, they put him to the test, and he has failed the test, and they have sentenced him to death. Don't we see the same pattern of putting God on trial in our society? Isn't this the very orientation of modern man? C.S. Lewis puts it like this. The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge, with a sense of, I'm about to face my, my judge and maker. For the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. And what is so wrong with this picture is it's a great reversal of what it should be. That rather than man recognizing that God is the ultimate judge of the universe, we have turned the tables on God and now we are judging him. You hear this in all sorts of ways. The sense of God doesn't meet my moral universe. God is homophobic or God is uh, judgmental or, or whatever it is. Actually, behind that sentiment, even though there are very reasonable answers to those complaints, even that sentiment is actually putting God on trial saying, I am the judge and I will judge you. And of course, it's very convenient to judge God because there are no awkward questions for you as the judge. It's very easy to put God on trial because actually that's a place of safety as the judge. What do you want to see is the great, the great offense of putting God on trial, the great, uh, in, the great ingratitude of the people of God here that they would put God on trial, that he had provided for them again and again all the way through, and yet they would turn around to him and say, actually, you're in the wrong. And don't you see the same offense of our modern culture that would put exactly the same, would put God on trial and say, actually, you don't meet my moral standards. You don't meet my vision of how the universe should be, and therefore I judge you. You're not for me. See the ingratitude of this, of this moment that God has provided for them so abundantly and yet they still say he does not meet their expectations. Actually, what you've got to see is that this is in many ways a great warning from history. Again and again through God's word, we see this passage, this moment being referenced as a sense of do not do what they did. In Psalm 95, it's, 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 uh, it's referenced as exactly a kind of living um, warning, a warning from history. When he says, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen me at work. 
God has put breath in your lungs, ladies and gentlemen, and you can use that same breath to rail against God and, sh- and make curses towards him. See the great irony. See the ingratitude. See the offense of what they're doing and what we would do when we put God on trial. Remember that rebellion like this doesn't always look like an angry raised fist at God. Actually, this passage is referenced as a warning against idolatry, as a warning against sin, because quite often, underneath the surface, actually, sin is the choice to indulge in sin is often driven by that same sense of, actually, you know what, God, I don't really trust you. I'm going to do my own thing right now. I don't really want to listen to you. And sometimes you see that it's very quiet. It's almost no, you don't make a fuss about it, but underneath the surface, there is rebellion and anger, silent anger and subtle disobedience. You must see the foolishness of this kind of sense of rebellion towards God. I remember talking to a couple who had, who had a, uh, she, she was an adult at the time, but she, they had a, a daughter who was severely disabled. And uh, we had, they'd had a couple of drinks, we'd had a, a few drinks, and, and as is often the case, when, once you had a few drinks, then the real reality comes out. And they spent an evening just absolutely railing against God. Railing against us, in some sense, because we were the representatives of God in that conversation. But really, you could just feel the palpable anger. They had looked after their daughter so beautifully for for many years. But underneath that was a strong sense of anger towards God. How did you let this? They brought up all sorts of explanations of things that they had done, things that their family had done. Say, look, we're good people. How could he allow this to happen to us? But you know why that's so foolish? Because they're cutting themselves off from the very comfort and sustenance that they would need to do that act. No one's suggesting it wouldn't be a great hardship to bring up their daughter. But actually, by railing against God, you cut yourself off from the one who would sustain you, from the one who would give you the love that you need to continue to pour out on a daughter who can't respond back in the same way that you would like who can minister to your pain and your, and your sorrow and your suffering, who says, actually, the God who came down and suffered with us. The very irony of railing against God, of being angry with him, is that you cut yourself off from the very source of peace and contentment and strength that you need to walk through whatever trial you're going through. What you've got to see here is the problem is not pain. The problem isn't even unfulfilled desire. Desire is human. Pain is a reality of life. We will, there will all will be, we will all go through wilderness seasons. The difference is where you go with that pain. The difference is where will you run when you're in pain, when you're in the wilderness. Will you withdraw from God and rail against him, or will you run towards him? All he wanted was for them to cry out to him in humility, to say, Lord, we need you. We've come again to a place. You've brought us here to Rephidim. We don't have water. Lord, would you provide? And he would abundantly provide it. But instead, they withdrew from him and railed against him. The the first lesson that God wants to teach you when you're going through any trial is to run to him, to teach you to call to him, on him, to teach you to trust him that he will be enough. I was talking to one brother as we went through this passage. I was looking at this passage with someone earlier this week. And he's going through a wilderness at the moment. He's, he's finding all sorts of different challenges in his life. But what's fascinating, actually, is he read this and said, yeah, this speaks exactly to where I'm at. But you know what? I know that God still has things to teach me here. I know that as I go through this trial, I believe that God still has work to do here. And therefore, I'm going to trust him. And I thought that's exactly the way the people of Israel should have responded. God, you have things to teach us here, and we want to walk with you, not withdraw and run away from him. 
Bring your tears to God. Bring your laments to God. Bring your grief to God. Bring your pain to God. Bring your desire for sin to God. Bring your, te- your sense of, I'm tempted and I, need, and I want to believe that you are good again. That is what this passage is teaching us. Call out to him in your weakness and your pain. Second of all, how does God respond? So what we saw, what went wrong, now how does God respond? What you've got to see is that God is unexpectedly merciful to them. They have put him on trial. The great offense, the great indignity of saying to God, we want to kill Moses, effectively we want to kill you. What does he do? He goes along with it. He says, okay, and he participates in the trial that they have put on. It's like he effectively enters into the dock. See, in verse 5, it's quite incredible. He says, So Moses cries to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. And go, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. Now that phrase, before you there, actually is the kind of language you use in a, in a kind of defense trial. I will stand before you. It's almost saying, I will stand before you as defendants. That same language is used uh, to describe a servant, as someone, a great kind of posture of humility. The Lord will stand before, before the elders of Israel as they're about to bring a kind of judgment on the Lord. He's like, okay, I'll go and stand before you. Now, there's speculation as to what exactly that is. Is that the Shekinah glory? Is that the presence of God standing before them? Is that a, a, a pre-incarnation theophany? Is that Christ himself, the angel of the Lord, perhaps? There's different speculation. He says, I'm going to stand on the rock. And then, quite incredibly, he goes on. Let's go even further. Behold, I will stand before you on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. The rock is to represent God. He's saying, you will strike the rock I'm standing on. You will, it's effectively as if the Lord is saying, you will strike me. Strike me with what? The rod of judgment. This is the same rod that the Moses used in, that, in the moment on the Nile when he brought judgment on Israel. This, ro- this rod represents judgment. God is saying, strike the rock on which I stand. You want to put me to judgment? Okay, you may strike me with a rod of judgment. How does this make sense? How are we to make sense of what is an incredible act? Well, Paul makes sense of it for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when he says, Christ is the rock. This is what he says, for I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. This is one of the great passages in the Old Testament that reminds us of the person of Christ. This whole incident, in a sense, is a picture of Christ's willingness to take the judgment that we deserved on the cross. Just cast your mind back to Mark chapter 15. Cast your mind back. We see the same evil rebellion in the heart of humanity. The mocking and the spitting, the shouting, the human beings bringing God to judgment. You see, the, the, you see the, the evil intent in the heart of the chief priests who are jealous of Christ and, what, and are jealous of the movement that he's making. You see the crowd shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Aggressively uh, declaring in some sense that he has not met their expectations for the Messiah. 
Think about that moment. In fact, just before the moment in Mark chapter 15, he, there was a, a, a moment of a kind of kangaroo court where the Jewish rulers brought Jesus before and, and kind of brought a whole set of trumped up false charges, a great miscarriage of injustice. This whole scene speaks of, of the same idea of man putting God on trial. We do it in our hearts every day when we judge God and say he doesn't meet our expectations. We do it on a societal level, and yet God has willingly participated in it in sending his son to absorb that judgment. And just as Moses is instructed to strike the rock with a rod of judgment, so too Christ is struck by the rod of judgment that God himself pours out his wrath on Christ on the cross. He participates, he willingly, we would seek to put God on trial. It's almost like God says, yes, actually, I, and then he t- absorbs the penalty, absorbs the judgment that we deserve. And how does the cross end? It ends with Christ crucified on the cross with a spear into his side. And it, it, as you know, you'll know from John's gospel, there's blood and water that comes pouring out of him. Now, that's probably water around the, uh, the lungs for, because of its asphyxiation from the crucifixion. But really, I think that's actually a picture of the fact that as the rock is struck with the rod of judgment, so we receive living water. We seek to put God on trial, and yet God was saying absolutely all the time, I have put my son on trial for on, for on your behalf so that he would receive the judgment that you deserve for putting me on trial, and you'd receive the living water that you don't deserve. This picture here is a picture of Christ. Water. What this says is there is living water for thirsty rebels. There's a great contrast here between the self-righteous anger of the rebels who would bring God to judgment and the incredible abundant grace, even the humility of God who would stand on the rock before them as Moses strikes the rod with judgment, as the rock with judgment, see that great contrast between Christ on the cross, suffering willingly, humbly being humiliated before them on the cross as they shouted and mocked and spat at him and and insulted him. See the great contrast between the heart of humanity and the grace of God. See the great contrast. In our rebellion, we deserve to be shut out of God's kingdom. Just as those unfaithful Israelites, in fact, later on in the the wilderness, they will indeed, that generation will be shut out from the promised land because they failed to trust him. He, they, were, they, were, they send some spies and, and, he, and they go back and they don't believe that God is, is, is going to provide for them the promised land. They don't trust him and he shuts them out. They die in the wilderness. So the ne- it's only the next generation that goes in saying, you as the people of God don't deserve to be in that promised land with God. And yet because the judgment was poured out on Christ, you have an assurance, an assurance of your salvation that you will be in the promised land. We see the incredible grace of God here. We are like the, the people that Jeremiah describes who've sought living water, have sought, who've sought a way to quench our thirst in all sorts of wrong ways, who've chased vain idols, who've chased sin as a way of finding satisfaction, and yet Christ says, no, there is living water for you thirsty rebels. You thirsty rebels who've railed against me, who've gone to broken cisterns, and drunk the water that doesn't satisfy, no, they come and receive my living water. 
This is how Jeremiah puts it. He says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. We've put our trust in the next job or that relationship or whatever it is that we say, this is the thing that I need to satisfy me. And God says, no, don't be so foolish. I'm going to take that away from you and show you that you don't need it. To show you that I alone am the one who will satisfy you. And every good gift that I pass, the port that comes from my hand. Living, think about the way Christ offers living water to the woman at the well. She's been discarded by a number of men. Perhaps she's lived an adulterous life. We're not really clear. But she's been ostracized by her community. And yet Christ's invitation to her is water that satisfies You've got to see this as a picture of, just as we see the great rebellion at the heart of man, we see the great invitation from the living God to come and receive his living water. Even so, we're so foolish to go in other places. He says, come and drink. We find lasting satisfaction in his invitation. Think about those great words we find in John chapter 7. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from within, within them. By this he meant the spirit with whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Hear Christ's great invitation, come and drink. Come and drink. Come and receive the lasting satisfaction that your souls are longing for. Don't entertain vain idols anymore. Come and receive from me. I am the one who will meet your deepest desires. I think a number of us kind of, there are a number of things that stop us from coming to that invitation. One of them is simply repentance. Think about this moment as the Israelites watch the water come streaming out from the rock. It speaks in a, almost like a river in Psalm 78. There's a kind of abundant water. In that moment, they've been railing against God, and suddenly they see the water coming from the rock. It requires a certain level of, of humility and repentance to say, here, the God I've put on trial actually has provided everything I need. I'm now going to come and drink. Don't let, uh, don't let your pride stop you from coming to the water. Don't let your pride stop you from, from recognizing that you were wrong to seek satisfaction in all those other places and instead come and receive the living water from Christ. It requires repentance. It requires recognizing the foolishness of silently or loudly railing against God. It requires a kind of willingness to come and say, Jesus, I need your living water. I think another reason we don't come to the, the, the living water that Christ offers is we don't have a thirst. It's my absolute conviction and the sense I, when I was, I was preparing this message was the Lord wants thirsty people. The Lord wants people who long for him. I think about in Psalm 42, which I think expresses this thirst so well. This is how David puts it. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Isn't it a great tragedy that we as Christians may lack that thirst? That last bit of the the Psalm 42 that I read speaks of when can I come and spend time with you, God? Do you thirst for him? Do you recognize that Christ alone has the living water that will satisfy your deepest longings? Do you recognize that that deep need for intimacy in your life will only be satisfied by knowing the love of Christ? 
Do you recognize that existential angst that you're feeling and wondering whether you should find a new job will be answered not by finding that new job or finding that new location, but actually by saying, God, I trust you that you have my future in your hand and I will trust you that you will make my path straight and you will lead me to whatever the path you want and I will trust you and walk with you in that. Do you, do you have a thirst? Thirst must be cultivated. A hunger for God must be cultivated in the Christian life. That's one of the reasons why I think we need to create space. We need to go through those spiritual disciplines because you're actually, even if you don't lack that, even if you don't have that hunger, the first thing you're doing by going away and spent taking time with the Lord is actually cultivating that hunger. The mistake we make is responding to our anemic spiritual desire and going, okay, I won't really spend time with him. Instead, we need to do quite the opposite. If there's a lack of hunger in your life, that's a problem. There's a lack of thirst for the Lord. If you say, actually, I don't really mind if I spend time with him or not, that's a problem. So, no, God wants to cultivate thirst in your life because you have found the living water. Some of you have forgotten that the rock is with you. In the, you know, it talks in the, here in the wilderness, in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, the spiritual rock that followed them. If you're going through suffering, the, the easy thing to believe is that somehow God is not present with me. It may feel like that, that God is not present with you when you're going through suffering. That is precisely the time you need to remember the promises rather than the feeling. The promise that I am with you through that trial. I am with you. Think about, how, think about the picture they have. God is leading them in a pillar of cloud all the way through the wilderness. Again and again, God would want you to know, I am with you in the wilderness. I am with you in the trial. Do not believe the lie that I am not present with you, even as you go through this suffering. The spiritual rock is with you. But really, I think for some of you, it's that you don't believe he's good. You know, right at the beginning, I said, this is the thing that will shape your Christian life. Do you believe that God is good? Can you trust him? Well, here you have his character shown to you. Here you have his great humility, his great willingness to, be, to take the rod of judgment so that you might be, might be his child. His great invitation. If you don't trust him, see his character, see his willingness to die for you. That is the character which you can stand on. That is a character that you can come back to again and again in confidence that he will satisfy, in confidence that his ways alone are good. I think a lot of this is just spiritual amnesia, if I'm honest. Think about the people of Israel, how quickly they forgot all that God had provided for them, everything that he had done in their lives up to this point. Have you forgotten God's goodness? Have you forgotten everything that the Lord has done in your life to this point? Don't forget. Remember and draw near to the living water. The wilderness is not the problem. If you're going through pain and suffering, that's not the problem. The Lord wants you to bring that pain to him. Desire is not even the problem. The Lord says, I will satisfy your deepest desires and I will give you everything you need. You don't need to worry about that. Instead, we can simply marvel at the grace of God, marvel at his willingness to be struck and marvel at this incredible invitation to satisfy us. As we draw to a close, the band want to come up. I want to invite you, first and foremost, to view this as an invitation, to view this as a a moment to come and to drink that living water. Now, that will look different in different lives. For some of you who aren't Christians, that probably first and foremost means saying, God, I need you. I'm sorry that I've ignored you and I want to receive the the water that brings life. I want to believe and put my trust in you. If you are a Christian, it may well be that you've forgotten this. You've forgotten the reality that Christ satisfies. You've forgotten that he is the answer to your deepest longings. I want to invite you to kind of adopt a posture of, of, in, of invitation to him, of response to him. That might mean kneeling on the floor. That might mean just putting out your hands. That might mean just in your own heart saying, God, I need you again. 
as we have this first worship song, I want to invite you to respond with me by expressing a desire for him, by expressing an invitation to him, by expressing a need for him. That is, that is what God wants. He wants us to be a people who thirst for him, who cry out for him, who invite him into our lives. Why don't you respond however you want? I'm going to pray for us. The band will lead us. Lord, we want to express our need for you. We want to express that you alone are the one who satisfies our souls. You alone are the one who meets us in our pain, who meets us in the wilderness, and who meets us in the land of the living, who meets us when we're going through good and bad times alike. Lord, I want to thank you that you have the living water that brings life. I want to thank you that you was struck, the rock was struck, so that we might have this water that brings life. That you have poured out your abundant grace on us. That even though we rail against you, we don't believe you, we doubt your promises and your goodness, you've poured out your grace on us. So Lord, we want to repent of doubting your goodness. We want to repent of not walking in trust. We say, come Lord now, Come, Lord. I want to respond to this invitation that you make. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Lord, we want more of you. We desire your presence here. We desire to know as we know as we know that you are the one who satisfies our souls. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. We need you. Come, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the promise that you'll be with us. Thank you for the promise that you have grace for us again. Thank you for the promise that you're our good Father. And we trust you, Lord. Amen.